If you were to describe today's construction and industrial landscape in a word, interconnected might be the ideal one. On Cross Sections, host Anthony Goode will sit down with industry leaders for 10-minute conversations in search of the aha moments that present incredible opportunities for collaboration and growth. Only on Market Scale. So, I'm here today with uh, Michael Palmer, the Operations Director uh, for the Modular Mobilization Coalition, and Colby Swatson, the Executive Director uh, of the MMC. Uh, it's great to have you guys. Um, so, how are you? <laughs> great to be here. Early in the morning, how are you? <laughs> Wonderful. So we're going to chat a little bit about, you know, wherever things take us, but maybe uh, a general focus on the uh, types of projects that you guys are adding value to within your network after you give us a high-level overview of what MMC is, uh, and then into some of the challenges that the modular industry faces from a business and product standpoint. Um, and that'll be our sort of general agenda. So if I forget, you guys can remind me. Um, go ahead, Michael. If you want to take yeah, us off. So just for background, the MMC works primarily with multi-regional and national developers to create modular products that we can mass produce through our network of 22 independently owned modular factories. Um, and within that, I'd say we're primarily focused on the hotel space um, and workforce housing. Yeah, I'll add uh, just a couple, a few bullet points about some of the goals. You know, we really are targeting developers who are building high volume of a highly repeatable building uh, across the country. I mean, that's what we're built to be able to do to service that type of a need. Um, and then with our platform, we basically connect those developers with a, the host of modular service providers that you need to have in that network. So an architect, an engineering firm like yourself, Anthony, uh, obviously the modular manufacturers, transportation companies, your on-site assembly crews, general contractors, and even the building material suppliers. I mean, these are all stakeholders that are very, very important to delivering, uh, you know, that distributed uh, product anywhere in the country. And then lastly, you know, our, our goal is to really grow the modular space. I mean, we're at three and a half percent, four percent, and we want to grow that market share. We've done some back of the envelope analysis. We think that should be 35, 40 percent of the construction market. And if you look to other industrialized construction markets like Japan or um, even like Germany and Switzerland, they uh, the percentage of prefabricated construction um, as a percent of GDP is somewhere in that 30 to like 40% range. Uh, so we have a long way to go um, and there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built to even support that. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh there's that uh, Ryan E. Smith, that prefab architecture, that first book you wrote. I remember when I was reading through the different regions and realizing uh, just how little market share we had relative to them. <laughs> uh, it was definitely an eye-opener. Um, recently, also, I saw uh, MBI put out a figure that uh, the fabricators in the U.S., 21% uh, of their volume is multifamily and grew steadily to that point over just the last few years. So... Um, it seems like, I mean, not just um, that we're seeing significant progress in capturing market share or um, the market grabbing a percentage of fabricators output, we should say, uh, for multifamily, 
but I didn't see anything about hotels. So what do you, you know, Colby or Michael, what, what is your, um, sort of thesis on the hotel industry and maybe where modular providers can attack it from? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put a little color on that. Michael, Michael loves to talk about thesis. <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, the modular, the, uh, hotel industry, um, and there are obviously different segments, right? You've got the luxury class, you've got the business class, and then you've got the economy class. The economy class or the extended stay product has bounced back really quickly. Um, these guys actually, last year, they were already back up to pre-COVID levels mm. of occupancy. And we're starting, you're, you're, if you watch in the news and you keep track on this stuff, you're starting to see quite a few announcements about new extended stay product being put, you know, back in the ground, so back into construction. And there's there's really interesting dynamic happening in that space too, is that these extended stay hotels are actually sort of looking kind of like uh, apartments. So they're trying to play this, they're trying to move from just being a hotel to being a long-term, you know, living mm -hmm. unit, whether you want to call it a hotel or apartment. And I think that really lines with the, the gig economy. Right, people moving from job to job and being transient in their work don't need a place, you know, don't need a year long lease. Right. Yeah, and I think to, to build on that, like consumer um, interests, you know, with Airbnb and, you know, Verbo and kind of the, the launch people going out and just renting an apartment or a home uh, when they travel, it's kind of puts some pressure on these hoteliers to differentiate um, their product by adding more amenities or adding more kind of apartment-like features as Colby outlined. Um, I think when we look at hotels in the context of the modular industry, there's probably no better product, right? Because every room is essentially exactly the same. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is, you know, I think, you know, Marriott, out of all of the, the larger brands, is really invested in going a modular route. Um, I still think it's a very small percentage of everyone's overall build. And part of that is just... The, the structure of the hotel industry where you have a brand that more or less designs this prototype and then they franchise everything out to developers that tweak and amend that prototype to fit the needs of the specific market. And while at a high level we can say hotels make that are the best fit for the modular industry, that, that last step of tweaking everything um, to fit specific developers' needs or wants is really where modular kind of like attractiveness that is deep diminished a little bit and that's mm -hmm. um and, and and again that's a challenge for all of these factories that you know are independently owned which is the majority of modular factories for them to work with one distinct developer to design a specific iteration of a marriott prototype um and it, it makes it really difficult for that to scale both at the factory level and at you know the developer level Interesting. Um, perhaps we, we can look at it as um, where do you think the change is going to come from, right? Is it the is it the brand that ultimately has to, um, for lack of a better term, kind of like what we're seeing in government mandate that uh, the most effective delivery method is used? I like these general words. Right? Um, or is it going to be the capital behind the brand, the Starwood, uh, of the world say, no, we, we want projects delivered on time and on budget with this level of cost control. Um, so you have to, you have to go this method. Where do you think that that pivotal point is going to come from? 
And who who do we have to chase down? Get some answers from. <laughs> I think if if the modular industry is able to demonstrate the value proposition of being able to reduce costs and guarantee that price in a specific time, um, and ideally that schedule is thirty to forty percent less than what a stick built or traditional built building would be, I, I do think it starts with the brand, right? What mm. a what a powerful value proposition to tell a franchisee, hey, here's here's my hotel, just have this person manufactured for you, it'll cost this much and it'll be done in this amount of time. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's a very powerful uh, value proposition from a brand to a franchisee. Uh, I think the challenge is that these franchise or these brands still want to give the franchisees some ownership over um, what it is that they're building. And uh, while that's, that's probably necessary in, in certain uh, situations, like in very specific markets, it's probably one of those 80 20 rules where 80% of those builds probably could be standardized and again produced through uh, a network of factories to make it really easy for that franchisee. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, there's brand, the brand has a play in this. There's definitely needs to be more discipline um, there as well as on the ownership side. I think from a design standpoint, we need to account for more flexibility. So when you want to skin the the hotel for a particular city or municipality or even a a neighborhood feel Mm -hmm. that you have that option and you're not having to go, you know, architect something new and different that you can just pick the, the option, the modular option that has that style you want. So there's sort of more investment that needs to be made, more thought that has to be put into the engineering and architecture up front. And this is one of the major challenges in the, in this space for anybody who wants to be modular is that you have to change your mindset from spending more money up front on the design and engineering is going to save you money on the back end. And that's hard to do because of how we capitalize projects. Hmm. Usually it's just a really difficult, um, you know, the way 98% of the industry works is that they capitalize from project to project and they finance, they finance after the deals are sort of closed. And, you want to do a lot of planning before the deal closes, right? You want to understand what you're going to build and what your cost is going to be. And that's where I think Michael's point is, if a brand can invest that time and that money in the design and get a better better engineered product, then the franchisee, it's easier for them to pull the trigger. Plus, it's guaranteed price. You know, and I say, I say we need to be shooting for 50, 60, 70% faster than site built. And, and a lot of that speed comes from investment in design, right? And so mm. it, I think one of the things that's interesting about hotels in particular is they already more or less design in a manufacturing mindset, right? They, the brands invest in developing a prototype and that prototype, you know, is typically pretty expensive because the architect designing that prototype really wants to make sure that all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed before it goes and gets built 300 times. Um, The same is true of a modular design, right? Like we need to invest in that prototype. And what Colby had added was, um, you know, have other modular components that allow for different variations of that prototype, right? Like all of those things can be standardized. Um, But it is difficult to take um, an an existing brand uh, and kind of reinvest in developing a prototype when, every new project just basically pays a restamping fee uh, mm-hmm. of an existing design. 
And so there's there's a bit of that like mindset shift that needs to occur in taking something that's already been designed and putting it through a new prototyping process. Uh, and I think that that's a difficult pill to swallow, but certainly for brands that are um, new and emerging, what, when they're in that prototyping phase, we found that those tend to be the most productive conversations because you know the brand is already making some of those longer term decisions. Interesting, and and I'm I'm currently getting an education on that space, so um, I date myself a bit thinking about when I worked uh, in the hotel industry. Um, but for me, it was I had this sense of rebellion against the brands ultimately because it, it seemed like things just they had their interest in licensing their product ultimately their brand to be carried along, and that would help you finance your project. And as a developer, they solve some of the challenges of. Um, you know, site selection, financing arrangements. But when it came to project efficiency or getting involved in any sort of development aspect or um, adjusting any of those risk metrics, other than putting their name on your building, um, they really didn't get involved. Um, so I had a rebellious streak where I went into and, and backed some independent brands. But it seems like there's been change. Has that been from the larger brands, in your opinion, or like you mentioned just a second ago, which surprised me, is it the new emerging brands that are now figuring out their prototype? Well, you've got some, you've got some uh, camaraderie here with the rebellious crowd. Um, that's certainly, uh, I think, how we would characterize ourselves. So that change primarily is new brands that are able really? to kind of think longer term. I think you are seeing, like the Marriott is a great example. They continue to kind of push the modular front. Um, I think you're starting to see some of the other legacy uh, brands look at it and take a serious uh, sort of analysis from an economic standpoint and from a value proposition standpoint. But again, you know, that's a that's an investment and it's an investment not just in your design, but it's an investment in your business model. Right. So mm -hmm. you're going to say to your your franchise, hey, we have this new delivery method. Right? Typically, you do a site built delivery method. We have this modular delivery method, and here's the benefits of that. Here's here's the guardrails that you have to work within. But here's you know here's here's what you can get at the end of the day with that, and it gives I think more options um, because modular doesn't make sense everywhere. It never mm -hmm. will, um, and we have to recognize that. But we also don't give it its due justice today. So yeah, and, and I think like to be a little bit more explicit. You can reduce the cost per key by 10% and still command the same, you know, daily rate. Then you're just juicing the returns of the franchisee. Um, and then to go back to your your question, Anthony, I think, you know, when you think about some of these like large brands versus the emerging ones, I I kind of assign the label of like some of these emerging brands have more flexibility to be more innovative, right? I mean, Marriott is a massive organization. Now, a lot of times they'll just buy an emerging brand because it's easier right. for them to acquire innovation than it may be for them to actually facilitate it in-house. Um, and that's no knock on Marriott. I think that that's true of any large corporation. Uh, it's just difficult to change the status quo. And there are a lot of protocols in place that really resist innovation because it kind of creates some risk. Of course. Um, so. Yeah, it's uh, it might be them, or it might be their shareholders, or it might be their their legacy culture. You know, so when we talk about those niche brands that are coming up, I mean, some of them can be independent, some of them could be spinoffs or or recent buyouts that retain a little bit of control. So um, there's a lot of flavors, 
Uh, I think it depends on the on the leadership of, of that particular division. Sounds like you guys have a pulse on on who, and uh, maybe that you know having these conversations, we can attract some of those like minds uh, and and have those conversations about just better project delivery. So we have uh, a few more minutes left. Let's go into a little bit sort of um, let's touch on you know contracts and and individuals and participants. Uh, Michael and I, I know we've had some conversations in that regard. And then we can also talk a little bit about some of the uh, financial infrastructure that Colby alluded to before. So let's get on the, uh, so contractually or, or how parties relate to each other in the delivery of the project. How is it, how is modular or advanced project delivery or IPD <laughs> make that uh, more of a possibility? Yeah, maybe educate everyone a little bit on that. Sure. So I think um, to take a step back, when we look at like where modular construction saves money, typically and historically, the only cost savings that's created is in the financing side because modular construction is just faster. You're bringing you know, 80% of the building under roof and it's going on an assembly line and they're able to produce somewhere in the ballpark of seven to 10,000 square feet per week, right? So it's a massive improvement compared to what you would see on site. Um, when we think about some of, and when you look at actually these other industrialized countries like Japan, you know, Switzerland, Germany, um, where they're able to, to save a lot of additional costs beyond that uh, in the factories on labor uh, and in material because they're able to procure in larger quantities. But there's also a cost savings that comes on the delivery side. And so that's mm -hmm. really where we started to spend some time digging into contracts because all of the factories in our network said it was a pain point. Working with uneducated GCs or not uneducated GCs, but inexperienced GCs in the realm of modular. And the, the pain point there actually is that because of a GC's lack of experience in, with modular construction, they're artificially inflating the cost of modular construction. So, uh, and, and within that, you know, a general contractor's role really to manage risk and when they don't have a way of assessing that risk they typically inflate contingencies or other costs on top of that and that's where we started to see some of this fat um, mm. for uh so so when we kind of like break down into what's different about modular construction versus traditional construction you have really like two big categories um, i would say you have like general contractor administration which is just overseeing the project. And then you have um, construction risk, right? Contingencies, insurance, all that kind of stuff. Um, we're removing in a typical modular project between 55 and 60% of the dollar value of the project is moved offsite. Uh, with that comes a huge decrease in subcontractors that the general contractor has to oversee and manage. Um, and there's less time that that general contractor is required to be on site, right? So in the administrative category, it's, those costs should be decreased by a function of both schedule and the percentage of the scope of work that is now controlled by the modular factory. Within the modular factory's scope of work, they're responsible for buying the raw material, producing the building, delivering the building to site, setting the building, and in most cases, even installing the roof on top of the building. Okay, so to give you just like an idea of how much scope is actually being controlled by the factory, the general contractor shouldn't be charging the same amount of money 
to manage that site as they do with a traditional bill, right? At the very least, they're managing 60% less subcontractors, mm. right? Yep. So then when you go into the risk category, you know, because a lot, you know, a lot of environmental risk is reduced because the building's being produced under a warehouse. So that's an easy thing there. I will say that there's probably a couple of new risks that are introduced by virtue of having such a large percentage of the project being managed by one entity, right? But what a lot of general contractors don't realize, and even owners and lenders don't realize, is that everything on the factory side is insured from when it's a raw material, while it's in production, and it's insured as finished goods once it's sitting outside of the factory. It's insured during transportation, and it's insured during you know the delivery and set. So comparing that to like a stick-built building, when do you have 60% of your project truly insured from raw material until installation? Um, and that's just a learning curve thing. Once we, once we break that down for a lender, they tend to, to really gravitate towards um, modular construction. But when it comes to pricing the project, like all of those things aren't today adequately um, priced in the contingencies and the other insurances that are typically applied by the general contractor. And so by moving to a more collaborative contract structure, something like IPD or, um, you know, even uh, a multi-party contract, we can start to create some transparency around how those contingencies are used and develop a new, more or less a pricing history for how risk um, should be calculated on modular projects. And so what we've done is we've you know, interviewed a ton of architects and factories and um, several GCs to really just understand the mechanics of what each party needs in order to feel comfortable with this project or with a modular project. And we've, we've structured you know, modular delivery strategy that creates transparency there, but also in the end helps reduce or eliminate that inflated cost um, that's applied to modular construction so that the industry can be more competitive. And by taking all of those things that I talked about and kind of lumping them together, it's somewhere in the ballpark of 3 to 4% savings of total development costs, which um, may not seem like much, but you know, on, a, on a $50 million project, that's a pretty significant number. Michael just said an awful lot, covered a hell of a lot of territory. Yeah, so. yeah. I like, I'm following along because we, we spent some time uh, actually doing that <laughs> together. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wanted to summarize it. Yeah. Just, you know, what MFC is doing is consolidating the team. It's, it's, it's bringing, it's consolidating and keeping continuity from build to build to build. And when you do that, then you start to know who you're working with, whether it's a factory, whether it's a GC. And you know who the team is, instead of risk stacking when you write contracts, which is sort of covering your, you know, CYA, you can start to de-risk the project and incentivize different behaviors when people know each other. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what MMC is really about, is just building a team that can work to deliver all of your projects and drive waste out and incentivize behaviors that instead of starting projects as friends and ending up as enemies, <laughs> You know, we, we can actually uh, work together all the way through. And it's funny that that, that is all, it's a joke, but that, that to me resonates with um, the level at which you operate in, in, in the construction industry and um, how projects typically structured is that joke that you start as friends and as enemies just because there's so much room for misunderstanding um, and, and scope creep and a lot of other things. So 
Michael's talking the language of the lenders, uh, much of what I heard when I was uh, at an investment firm. And, and Colby and I, I mean, th this is this is the construction language. You know, if you want to stay friends, <laughs> you know, let's uh, let's draft those contracts in a way that are, are clear and concise. And who knows, it might even get you financed, you know. Um, yeah. So great. Well, to be clear, I think under that type of delivery method, everybody else should be making more money. Everybody should be more profitable. The general contractor has less responsibility, less risk, and therefore needs to allocate fewer resources to a project. Mm -hmm. if, if they can do that and still command the same type of fee structure, then they're more profitable, yeah, right? It's, the factory, too, like, should be more profitable if they're able to be more competitive and, and you know, promote their product. So it's, it's a scenario that's like a win-win-win for everybody that's involved, but it does take, as Colby said, just bringing everybody to the table and collaborating as opposed to pointing fingers as to who's to blame for um, everything that goes wrong on site. Right. And there might be some things outside of your control. So as a fellow operations guy, I mean, we're, we're trying to understand um, where, where our time goes. It's not all about top line. The, the construction industry has been, you know, collect the top line, collect the, the gross dollars and then figure everything else out. Right. Because there's just so much risk. Like why even quantify it? Just bill out the time and, and then everybody spend way too much time on the phone. So until, until companies internally also control and understand where their employees' time are, is going and track it in real time and coordinate, um, you know, that's a whole other separate evolution of, of our industry and many others that as that gets tighter, you'll have more cooperation on the other end of, hey, do less, get paid less, but your margin is going to be the same or better. And that should be attractive to those firms that have a really strong handle uh, on, their, on their billable hours. And it might be engineering, architectural firms, or larger GCs like Mortensen and Swinerton and everyone else who's kind of dancing in the modular space. It's because they're well organized to begin with, you know, or they're small and nimble and, and started out with the right culture. Uh, there's a bunch in between that, you know, may be appropriate to enter the modular space, or maybe there's things holding them back that's specific to their culture that they just can't resolve at this point. If you have 100 employees and you've been operating on top line, and, uh, you know, you might just not be competitive um, and, and they'll they'll miss out on the opportunity. Um, so that's uh, that more or less makes up uh, a lot of what I wanted to talk to you about. Maybe a little bit on the financing with the, some of the uh, challenges on that end, Colby, if you want to if you want to jump in there. But I feel like we could go for a while on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could go for a very long time there. You know, I think uh, we touched on it a couple of times. I mean, you know, the, the risk side of the equation, investment on the front end that's required, um, mm. how projects how projects are typically financed don't suit a modular long-term delivery system because you need to front load the financing so that you can pay for the investment. Mm -hmm. You know, when, you, when you're an automotive company or and you decide to put a new vehicle into production, you spent five years and up to five hundred to a billion dollars just before you even put a product on the on the production line. You know, and, and that billion dollars, five hundred to a billion, is if you're if you're using an existing platform, right? If you design an entirely new vehicle from scratch and uh, you know new car, new engine, you know new chassis, you're looking at like four to five billion, right? And Imagine, you know, every project, every modular factory on every project is asked to design something more or less from scratch. Now they borrow things from their platform or their library, but 
they're asked to do it at you know a fraction of of, of those numbers, and uh, it, it's a challenge. To bring it to like the construction industry, uh, large production home builders, when they do a master plan community, spend a, an inordinate amount of money in investment, looking at demographics, designing the right product, figuring out the layout, and they don't make their money back until the second half of that that construction project. Just like the, the automobile manufacturer doesn't make money on the first car. Mm-hmm. They don't make money until they get, you know, the 500, 500,000 car or a million car. So right. you have to, that, I mean, I think that contextualizes the finance problem here. Um, you know, we could go way into the weeds uh, and talk way more detail, but uh, I don't think we have time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can, I can, I can close it up with seeing, um, that the environment has changed a lot over the last decade. Obviously, investment in in uh, modularization and componentization and manufacturing merged with construction uh, has increased a lot from a, a sort of net infusion of dollars. Um, I've also personally, just in the peripheral, seeing uh, private equity firms that specifically focused on, uh, they called it asset light manufacturing facilities, are now looking at construction manufacturing specifically. So it might just come back to investment styles. And then uh, my, my thought is kind of the rising tide effect. You know, as these new competitors enter the market, ready and willing to finance and, and looking at it as uh, uh, an adjusted risk, maybe slightly less upside, but a, a major opportunity to lend in the construction manufacturing space. Those that are have been spoiled in, in, uh, in their lending criteria uh, will see that and have to become more competitive. So I always think, you know, the, the competition is always going to drive the market. Uh, and of course, that sort of gross opportunity, like the return of hotels post-COVID, um, knowing that certain projects and, and that database growing of case studies uh, that ultimately drive new lenders to the space with a different understanding of risk. Um, so we have it on both ends, right? Uh, your team working on uh, communicating what's already present and those that don't see it ultimately will see the competition that ensues <laughs> uh, and they'll have to get with it. So either way, we're, we're headed down the right path, right? Yeah, it only takes a few people to start, um, you know, realizing a superior return in order for other people to jump into it. I think the interesting thing about real estate is it tends to be like the lower risk asset class. Right? Oh, yeah. So um, albeit the construction industry is a total mess and everybody admits that, Nobody wants to do anything different because they've they've figured out a way to operate within the chaos that still gives them this relatively low risk return. Right. Um, and so until you know an organization um, or or a developer is able to execute a modular strategy and start to demonstrate that they have uh, you know outperformed the norm, um, it's you know there's. 90% of those developers are probably going to continue to do what they know because it's just easier. It works. Right? And so, yeah. right. So you're almost taking like a risk averse group of people and asking them to do something different. And mm. it's, it's just a challenge. Agreed. And, you know, I'm super, I'm super excited about the industry. I mean, I, I'm very optimistic. I see a lot of new people, new entrants, bringing new ideas, new business models, uh, try to try to develop new insurance mo- uh, packages and new uh, you know new lending packages that fit this this new thinking right this new way of approaching 
the construction industry, which I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's a new delivery model. And that new channel has to be developed, and we need people working to develop that channel in a very sophisticated way because it's it's so integrated with all the stakeholders. We can't do this siloed approach that we typically do in the construction world. It will not work in the modular realm. But that's the upside. Is it I mean, three and a half percent is all we have? I mean, we have nothing uh, but to go up. Yeah, we have. A, there's a lot of inertia that we have to break through. Um, and I think that inertia is where, you know, where MMC is looking for people, investors, developers, and have that long view, um, you know, come talk to us because we're, we're ready to help you actually achieve that. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both for your time. Uh, that was a great closing statement. I have nothing else to add. Um, awesome. Thank you for your time and uh, we'll talk soon.